All right, good morning. Uh, the topic of our lesson this morning is on worship. And that's a really big word and a really big heading. So we're not going to be able to even come close to covering a lot of what the Bible says about worship. We're just going to have to do an introduction. And there, there, there are whole books. And now, a lot of the topics we've covered in this class, you can say there's whole books written on it. Uh, but worship is a standout in the amount of material that has been said and written on worship. So we'll do our best, and I always welcome all of your thoughts as we go through this. By way of introduction, let me say, I had a friend in seminary, and me and this friend were engaged in a, a really serious debate. And this debate was whether NASCAR was a sport. Now, you can say what you want, but I took, in this debate, I took the, the position that NASCAR is not a sport. And me and my fellow seminarian, my friend, we were going back and forth. And finally, he just asked me, will you just state what you are trying to say? And so as carefully, with as well-chosen words as I could possibly muster, I began to craft a definition of what an athlete and, 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 and therefore an athletic event had to be to constitute being a sport. And finally he got frustrated with me and he said, Jason, not everything has to be systematic theology. <laughs> we tend to very much want to define and put into words and to structure exactly what we mean by many things. What I didn't tell you about that story is we both worked at UPS and by worked at UPS, I mean somewhere between the hours of 2 a.m. and 8 a.m. We were wandering around a warehouse, and it was uh, there, there was probably a lot of sleep deprivation that went on in that conversation. Uh, but it was a good time. Uh, what exactly do we mean by worship? What is the purpose for which we use this word worship or a worship service? And and how are we to apply what the Bible says so many thousands of years ago to what we do today in uh, our assembly here at Heritage Baptist Church? This is what we want to explore together uh, this morning. Consider from the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 6, verse 7. I'm sorry, uh, in verse, chapter 7, verse 16. And you shall say to him, this is uh, the Lord telling Moses what to say to Pharaoh. And, the, and you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. So we see at Mount Sinai, or I'm sorry, at the Exodus, the purpose for which God is liberating the Israelite people is so that they can worship God in the wilderness. Or consider Isaiah chapter 42. Verses 6 and 7 where the prophet writes, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon from the prison 
Those who sit in darkness, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I will give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. The Lord is calling out a people. For what purpose? To praise him, to bring him glory, to worship him, to serve him, in other words. Or as Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 through 14, In him that is in Christ we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is just a snapshot of what the word has to say about the purpose for which human beings were created. In fact, twice created. You know, it would be enough for you to be once created as part of this universe to see the glory and the majesty of the creator and that would that should be enough for you to fall on your face and worship him. But for those of us who are twice created, that is once as part of the physical universe, but twice as the spiritual sons of God, it is more incumbent upon us that we would bring glory and praise to the name of our God as he would direct us to. This is the point of worship. I read an article just this morning in the Atlantic now, the Atlantic is not exactly a, uh, a Christian publication, uh, but it's Sunday, so why not publish something on religion? The uh, title of this article is, Building a Church Without God Was Never Going to Be Easy. Secular organizers started their own congregations, but to succeed, they need to do a better job of imitating religion. Let me just read a few lines out of this for you. Uh, telling a personal story about a woman who uh, grew up in church but later lost her faith because of reasons. And uh, she moves to New York. By the time she turned up in New York, her faith had long since unraveled, a casualty of overseas travel that made her question how any one religious community could have a monopoly on truth. But still, she grieved the loss of God. It was like breaking up with someone that you thought was your soulmate. Uh, she remembered thinking, even though it no longer made sense for her to believe, she felt a gaping hole where her church, her people, her psalms, her stained glass windows used to be. The article goes on and describes the uh, attempt of non-believers to imitate what we're doing here. Now, I'm not the first one to bring to your attention such uh, organizations. We, we've heard it before, and it, it's been an illustration uh, many times. Uh, let me ask you, though, what in the world do these people think they're possibly going to accomplish with organizing such an event? So in the article, they describe that uh, they're going to gather and they sing songs. Uh, they sing popular songs like Living on a Prayer by Bon Jovi. And the uh, author notes, not well, but they sing it, right? Um, they, they have talks. Uh, if any of you have YouTube, I'm sure a TED Talk has swung by your, uh, your feed, right? Uh, so they have TED Talks. 
esque, like on uh, physics and maybe how the uh, how quantum theory could account for consciousness and and these kind of deals, right? So uh, they have sermons and they have songs and they have community. And in their community, uh, someone has to get the donuts ready and someone has to get the coffee ready and someone has to go out and invite people in. And, and there's an evangelism aspect, right? Because no organization can exist if people aren't willing to come and, and give and participate. And a lot of volunteer labor goes into a church, right? And so these congregants, these ones that are assembling themselves together, uh, but it's proving to be disastrous. In fact, they're closing at record speed, and uh, so they'll pop up a little outpost, right, and it'll close, and attendance is way down. And we might say, well, I wonder why that didn't work out, right? We might make a joke about it. We might think, uh, well, yeah, it, it serves you right. You're going to try to imitate something God has put together, a worship service, and take God out of it. But let's just stop to think. What gave them this idea that this could be successful in the first place? Let's read together in Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2 in verse 17. The Apostle Paul is speaking specifically to Jews here in their context of rejecting Christ. And he says, But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know His will and approve what is excellent, because you were instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide of the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Now I want to present this to us as a challenge, not as an indictment. Not as a condemnation. I'm not saying that our situation is exactly the same as the situation Paul was facing. But the Jewish religion had become very institutionalized. It had become very formal. It had become very uh, propped up on its, uh, on its traditions. And therefore it had lost its power. It had lost its transforming power. It had lost any compelling reason for the outside world to look upon this religion given by God and say, surely God is there among them. And so Paul makes this indictment against the Jews and he says, it is because of you that the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles. Because of their empty traditions, their practices. They preached, but they didn't follow what they preached. And because of this, someone got the bright idea, there's really nothing to this whole religious thing. I wonder if, as people walk away from a faith, a, a belief in God, a theism, if you will, and they establish these alternative communities where they're going to sing uh, Living on a Prayer and hear TED Talks all, day, all Sunday, right? I wonder if there's anything to be said about the American church. When you visit a worship service of any American church, what are you going to find? Empty traditions and people saying things that they don't believe and living ways that they don't practice. 
or will you find an awe and reverence that would be such that if an outsider were to come into our midst, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 23 and 25. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers, unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. We talk a lot about the worship wars, and, but this isn't, a, this isn't a how-to class on worship. This is a systematic theology class on worship. Let's bear our hearts to the Scripture and see, what does the Scripture say true worship is? And let's just live in Hebrews chapter 12 for a minute. So if you haven't turned in your Bible yet, find Hebrews chapter 12. We've seen so far, it is for the purpose of the glory of God, to the praise of His name, that we were created. All of us once created, those of us in Christ twice created, to worship God. People have asked for centuries, why did God make people in the first place? Maybe he was lonely, maybe he needed, no, to worship him, to declare his glory among all is the reason God created everything. And our worship is to be distinctive and it is to be powerful. And as we read through Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 29, let's just see how powerful this worship is supposed to be. Verse 18, for you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised yet once more, and I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Now, no fingers pointed, 
Maybe just fingers pointed back here. But let's just ask ourselves for a minute. When was the last time in approximately 45, 50 minutes you remembered that what's about to begin is a terrifying event? That what we're going to engage in in a very short time ought to bring us to a halt and make us stop and wonder and stop and think to ourselves, just what exactly am I about to get myself into? If we are to offer acceptable worship to God, We'll talk about what acceptable worship is. But specifically in this passage, acceptable worship is with reverence and awe. Do we accomplish that on our Lord's Day gatherings? Do you accomplish that? Do you stand before God in reverence and awe as the Israelites did? Now, The first part of the passage we read here was a description of the Israelites standing before Mount Sinai. So we read that the purpose for which God delivered them from Egypt was to bring them out to worship Him, to bring them out of Egypt, to assemble them together. This is what the church is, an assembly of believers to stand before a mountain and there worship God. That is why God delivered them from Egypt, to worship Him. And when God manifested Himself to these Israelites in a physical, terrifying display, there was smoke and there was fire and there was a trumpet and there was a voice, the voice of God. And this brought the Israelites to a place where they said, no more, we beg you, no more. I cannot hear that voice again. I cannot even tolerate the command that not even a beast shall touch the mountain or it will be stoned. This command was too much for the Israelites. This this sight, this spectacle, this voice, this God manifesting himself brought fear to their hearts. They're the chosen people of God. They have remembered through 400 years of captivity the promise that God made to their forefathers. And here they are, standing before the God who has delivered them. And then, the the biggest understatement of all time, not just the Israelites, but then Moses says, it is even, uh, I tremble with fear. The understatement of all time. Moses standing before God and then even being able to approach the mountain. But even Moses says, I tremble with fear. This is a terrifying display of who God is. It is a display to instruct us who exactly we stand before in worship. But it is not before Mount Sinai. It is not with a display of smoke and fire and trumpets and a voice to which we gather to worship. No, it's more terrifying than that. You see, when Christians gather to worship, it is not to Mount Sinai, it is to Mount Zion, on which is the city of the living God, the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem. This is where Christians go to worship. I don't care if you gather in a gym or if you gather in, a, in, a, in the prairies of Africa. I don't care if you gather in a cathedral or if you gather in uh, the, the biggest megachurch that 
the United States has to offer. Wherever we gather, we don't gather in buildings. We approach Mount Zion, the heavenly city, the heavenly Jerusalem. With whom do we approach this God? Each other, sure, goes without saying. We gather to approach God together. Yes, but we also gather with the angels. We also gather with the firstborn. We gather with the righteous spirits who have gone on before us. See, we don't have a large enough vision about what worship means to us. We think we come into a physical gym and we sing some songs and we hear a preacher and our traditions too often are dragging us down. You need to believe in interdimensional worship where heaven and earth meet and as the people of God on earth approach God's throne, God's throne melds with the people of God on earth. And Mount Zion and the church on earth join together. And there we worship God with the angels, with the righteous spirits who have gone before us. It is more terrifying than to stand before Mount Zion to consider this sacred obligation that we have. For which you were created to bring glory and praise to God. To whom do we come? We come to God, the judge of all. With a word, he will reveal all. With a word, he will, he will expose those who persisted in their sin and their rejection of him. And he will reward those who have, by their faith, accepted Christ. He is God the judge. And we come to Jesus the mediator. This is what the author of Hebrews says. We come to Jesus the mediator of a better covenant. He is uh, the mediator of the new covenant in which there is, there is no longer... Jew and Greek, there is no longer male or female, but all are invited to approach this mountain of God and worship Him there. What do we do in worship? Look at verse 25. It gets kind of practical. See that you do not refuse Him who is speaking. We listen. We listen and we accept what is being said as the very words of God. Now, this is the section in our systematic theology where we're talking about the doctrine of the church, and we have talked about uh, you know, church leadership and authority and how uh, even the congregation has the responsibility to ensure that what is being taught is in fact the Word of God. But as we approach uh, the worship of God and as we have elected those men who will teach us the Word of God, we should accept these words as the Word of God. We should hear God's word and we should accept it. That is, we should obey it. Do you think our pastors labor for us to hear these messages and say, well, I feel good about that? No, our pastors labor to prepare these messages so that they will be obeyed. Because if they are God's word, then they are deserving of being obeyed. Insofar as our pastors are teaching us what God says we should do, we should joyfully listen and accept. And if we refuse, the author of Hebrews says, we are refusing to listen to the one who spoke on earth at one time, but now speaks from heaven. And how much more if those who were Reject, those who rejected the message on earth 
were condemned, how much more so will we be rejected if he is speaking from heaven to us and we reject his message? That's our responsibility in worship. We, we listen and accept the teaching of God. In verses 26 and 27, in our worship, we remain unshaken. There is a shaking that is going to take place towards at, at the end of this age. There is a shaking that will dislodge everything you know. But the Mount Zion on which we approach, on which we dwell, in which in our hearts, in our spiritual worship, we reside, it will always be unshaken. It is the kingdom of Almighty God. And so we remain unshaken, therefore we are thankful. And in our thanksgiving we offer acceptable worship. And our acceptable worship is with reverence and awe or fear. Now I know that I'm supposed to say, when I use the word fear, I don't mean like a little child is afraid of. I know I'm supposed to say that. But I don't want to blunt it. Let's not blunt the message of this text. When we approach God in worship, do we have an acceptable level of reverence and awe with respect to the one whom we are approaching? That's the challenge that the scriptures would give us. That's a, that's, that's a theology of worship, not a how-to. But let's lighten the mood a little bit. Maybe not so much, because I'm going to read from you from John Frame. Uh, how do we know what to do? All right, so we're supposed to worship God in reverence and all, and you know, that's a sobering message, and, uh, and, and that's fine, but somebody else is planning that worship service, and you know what? I really like to uh, talk to people before the worship service, and sometimes that distracts me, and sometimes even into the first song, I'm still carrying on my conversation. And I just wonder, you know, is there a point at which I enter into reverence and all? Right? These are all practical matters. These are all things that we need to think about when it comes to worship. Uh, there is a principle that uh, Reformed and Presbyterian folks adhere to in worship. It's called the regulative principle. Now, I was told never read from somebody it, unless they can say it far better than you. And guess what? John Frame can say it far better than me. So bear with me just a minute. I'm going to read two and a half pages of text to you about the regulative principle. And I hope that we'll get a better understanding of what this means. And we'll talk about it after I finish reading. Title of the chapter is Rules for Worship. It often surprises people to learn that God is not always pleased when people worship him. We might be inclined to think that God should be thankful for any attention we give him out of our busy schedules. But worship is not about God's thanking us. It is about our thanking him. And God is not pleased with just anything we choose to do in his presence. The mighty Lord of heaven and earth demands that our worship, indeed all of our life, be governed by his word. As early as Genesis 4, we learn that God did not look with favor on Cain and his offering. In Leviticus 10, God destroys Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, because they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. The first four of the Ten Commandments deal with worship in various ways. They regulate our dealings with the holy. The first forbids the worship of false gods. The second forbids the worship of any god, even the true god, by means of idols. 
The third forbids wrong uses of God's holy name. The fourth requires us to remember his holy day. Scripture thus draws sharp lines between true and false worship. Condemnation of idolatry permeates the Bible. Therefore, it is a matter of utmost importance, literally a life and death matter, to know how to worship God rightly, according to his will. The wrong kind of worship provokes God's wrath, not his blessing. We may not do anything we please in God's awesome presence. Modern Christians are far too casual about worship. The letter to the Hebrews admonishes us to worship God acceptably with reverence and all, for our God is a consuming fire. How then can we worship God acceptably? That is the crucial question. But before we answer that, we must answer another question, namely, how do we find out how to worship God acceptably? Where do we find the rules for worship? To all Christians, the basic answer is Scripture. God rules all human life through his word and thus rules worship by scripture. But how do we use scripture to regulate worship? On this question, different groups of Christians have given different answers. Roman Catholics, Episcopalians, and Lutherans have taken the position that we may do anything in worship except what, what scripture forbids. Here, scripture regulates worship in a negative way by exercising veto power. Presbyterian and Reformed churches, however, have employed a stronger principle. Whatever Scripture does not command is forbidden. Here, Scripture has more than veto power. Its function is essentially positive. On this view, Scripture must positively require a practice if that practice is to be suitable for the worship of God. The Westminster Confession of Faith puts it this way, The acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshipped according to the imaginations and devices of men or the suggestions of Satan under any visible representation or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scripture. The operative word is prescribed. Eventually, this restriction of worship is uh, to what God prescribes became known as the regulative principle of Reformed and Presbyterian worship. This regulative principle reflects a genuine insight into the nature of biblical worship. As we have seen, worship is for God, not ourselves. In worship, we seek to honor Him. Therefore, we must seek, seek above all to do what pleases Him. To do this, we cannot trust our own imaginations. Nadab and Abihu trusted their own wisdom, and God judged them severely. Can any of us trust ourselves to determine, apart from Scripture, what God does and does not like in worship? Our finitude and sin disqualify us from making such judgments. For such a serious decision, potentially a life and death decision, we must seek God's own wisdom, the revelation of his own heart. We must ask the scriptures what God wants us to do in worship. Then, as we worship, we must do those things and only those things. Scripture itself condemns worship that is based only on human ideas. This is from Isaiah 29. These people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is made up only of rules taught by men. This word of God through Isaiah was repeated by Jesus in Matthew 15 and Mark 7. Paul in Colossians 2 condemns self-imposed worship, worship unauthorized by God. Scripture, God's word, is sufficient for our worship. As for all of life, we must not add to it, and we dare not subtract anything from it. 
That's John Frame's definition of the regulative principle. How, how do we know? How do we come to know what, what we should do in worship? Is God pleased with interpretive dance? Is God pleased with fog machines? Is, I, mean, I mean, if we want to recreate an awesome fear-like environment as at, Mount, at Mount Sinai, should we have pyrotechnics and, and fog machines to simulate the smoke? Should we uh, have booming voices come out of the microphone? Um, what exactly is acceptable worship to God? And how do we get there? How do we know? Well... According to John Frame, and I think it's fair to say according to uh, our own beliefs at Heritage Baptist Church, we get there through the Word of God. And if the Word of God doesn't say that we should do it, then we shouldn't do it. How are we sinful, finite, small, made things to know what the unmade infinite God of the universe would would like in worship unless he were to tell us. If he were to tell us what he likes in worship, then we would be on safe ground to say, okay, let's do those things. Uh, Let's back it up. John Frame quoted many scriptures to back up what he was saying. uh, And some of the more story-like elements from what he was saying is, are, are very compelling. Uh, but consider in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 1 through 8, just an explicit statement about what God requires in worship. And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you, and do them, that you may live, and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the, that the, Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor, for the Lord your God destroyed from among you all the men who followed the Baal of Peor. But you you who held fast to the Lord your God are all alive today. See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? Whenever we call upon him, And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? That's a blessing. There's a, sure, there's a reverence and a holy fear in approaching God. Why does the world try to imitate what God has laid down? Surely it's because there is a recognition There is a recognition that when the people of God follow God's rules for worship, there is an understanding that that God is among them, that the power of the Lord is at work in them, that the rules and the statutes that God has laid down for His people are truly wise and they are life-giving and they are to be received as a blessing from God's own hand. But how does the Old Testament really relate to the New Testament? Have you ever stopped in and started to think to yourself, boy, it must have been really easy for those Israelites. Their worship was so prescribed. I mean, in 
In Old Testament worship, you had the covenant at Mount Sinai. You had the place determined. Right? They didn't have to choose whether they uh, felt most at home at Heritage Baptist Church or uh, any other church in Owensboro. Right? They, they didn't have to make a decision about where to worship. There was the tabernacle and later the temple. And inside the tabernacle, there was, uh, and inside the temple, there was the holy place and there was the holy of holies. And inside the holy place, there were certain furnishings. There was the table and there was the lampstand and there was the basin in the outer court, right? And in the Old Testament, uh, there were feasts and there were Sabbaths and there were sacrifices and everything was laid out to the letter. How easy did those Old Testament saints have it? Man, they didn't have to think about anything. All they had to do was walk between 50 and 90 miles a couple of times a year to gather together at the one place in Jerusalem. Now, to put it in perspective, Bowling Green's about 50 miles. You ever walk to Bowling Green? Man, those Old Testament saints had it easy. All they had to do was bring the first fruit of their flocks. The very best breeding bull that they had. And slaughtered it on the altar. Boy, those Old Testament saints had it easy. They, they knew exactly the day. Right? There, there was none of this talk about, well, you know, the Ten Commandments say that we need to keep the Sabbath day and maybe there's a Lord's Day uh, principle in, in the New Testament and which day is it? And Paul said that there's no such thing as holy days and, and what does all this mean? Right? Boy, those Old Testament saints had it easy. They had, they had a place that was within walking distance of at least a day's journey from where they lived. They had uh, to offer the best of their flocks, and they had to gather several times a year in this central location to worship God. But it was all laid out for them. There were no questions about what they were to do. Man, they must have had it. They must have fulfilled it to the letter. If God laid out for us New Testament worship, I want you to sing Amazing Grace as the opening hymn, and I want you to sing uh, Just As I Am at the closing. If God laid it out for us, how easy would it be just to show up and, and do it? And yet we find the Old Testament saints growing weary, forgetting their God, rebelling, not offering the sacrifices, building shrines to idols. We think how simple it must have been in the Old Testament. And it wasn't. It wasn't. Sure, it was laid down. Sure, the letter of the law specifically indicated what their worship was to consist of. But they were sinners. Their hearts were prone to leave the God they love. And so there were times where they lapsed. And there were times where the Lord had to judge them for their false worship. Does this relate in any way? Does this Old Testament worship scheme relate in any way to the New Testament? In fact, it does. In fact, in the New Testament, we find out that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these Old Testament promises. In Hebrews, we've already read that Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. The covenant given at Mount Sinai was a covenant that would bring, uh, that would ensure that the Israelites were God's people, that He would be their God and they would be His people. And Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant, a new covenant that is for all of His people. Uh, in Jesus, we find the place of God's rest. 
You see, in, in, in a very real sense, the Scripture teaches us that Jesus is also a place. Um, one of the failings of a worship service that is mainly geared toward evangelism is that people begin to falsely believe that it is within the confines of a certain building where they will find God. When in fact our plea to people ought to be, run to Jesus. Don't come to us. Go to a place. Go to Jesus. Jesus is the tabernacle. He is the sanctuary. He is the place where rest is found. And having gone there, we then become the temple of God also. Built together into a house for the Lord, we are bricks in the temple of God. Where Jesus' people are gathered, there He is with them. There is a place that is fulfilled in New Testament worship. What about the furnishings of the temple? There was the table in the Old Testament where the showbread was laid out, where only the priests were allowed to eat from. Jesus fulfills the table. And last week we learned about how Jesus fulfills the table in the Lord's Supper. Jesus fulfills the lampstand. Jesus is the light of the world. In the holy place there was a lampstand and it represented the, uh, the light of God. Jesus is the light of the world. There is the basin where the priests had to wash their hands ceremonially before offering the sacrifices. Jesus is the living water. There were the sacrifices. And there were the sacrifices. In the New Testament, I'm sorry, in the Old Testament, I have failed to, to see the rite of the power washing of the altar. I've never, I've never read about that rite. The altar was continually continually flowing with blood. And Jesus shed his own blood once for all. Jesus has fulfilled all of the Old Testament uh, items of worship. There's no more debate as to whether we need to offer sacrifices as New Testament people, whether there is a particular temple or tabernacle, whether there is a particular... Uh, the furnishings of the temple need to be brought into our worship. The New Testament has laid down that Jesus is the fulfillment of all these New Testament, uh, all these Old Testament worship ideas. So, as we come to New Testament worship, what should we do? What should we do? Does the does the Bible, does the New Testament say what Christians should do when they gather together? And as we begin this portion of our conversation, uh, let's make a distinction between the elements of worship and the circumstances of worship. The elements of worship are those non-negotiable things that God has commanded. The circumstances of worship are the things that we are free to, uh, to decide in a practical manner how they are to be done. For example, we're going to see that the New Testament commands us to sing to the Lord. It does not command us how many songs. That's a circumstance. The leadership of the church is going to determine, well, we're going to have maybe four songs as part of our worship. Or we're going to have three. Or we're going to have two. Or we're going to have one. Or we're going to have a dozen. Right? That's a circumstance. How many songs are we going to sing? Uh, we're going to see that the uh, New Testament commands us to gather on the first day of the week. It doesn't say what time. It doesn't say 10.30. It doesn't say 8 o'clock at night. That's a circumstance. 
Okay? Let's make a distinction between the elements of worship that are required and the circumstances where we just practically need to understand what needs to happen. Or we can decide what needs to happen. All right, uh, let's go to Colossians chapter 3. Yeah, go ahead, Derek. So in terms of like a, a New Testament reason for the regular principle, um, it's not just rules, but also freedom. So we're, the, Mark's preaching on the freedom of the conscience and the Bible commands us all that we are together together on that first day of the week. So if we want to do things that aren't commanded in the New Testament, if the pastors were to command us to do things that weren't in the New Testament, they would be impugning our freedom of conscience. Mm. So our, our, our worship is regulated by the Bible so that when we gather, we all have freedom of conscience because we can't be commanding one another to do things that aren't commanded in Scripture. Right. There's a really good article called Regulative, Regulative Like Jazz yeah. on the regular principle, and it's like three pages long, and it's really good, and it's a... Uh, really helpful if you want to read it. You just Google like Cool. I'm going to repeat that for the recording in case it didn't pick up. Uh, so our brother Derek mentioned that uh, the regular principle for New Testament saints is, uh, is also an expression of freedom. Our freedom in Christ is that we, we are free to worship God uh, according to our consciences. And there is an article called uh, regu- the regular... Regulative say, like jazz. Regulative like jazz. And if you want to look that up online, I'm sure you can find it. All right, Colossians chapter 3. Uh, what, does the, what does the New Testament say about our worship? What should we be doing? Uh, verses uh, 16 and 17. Paul writes, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So here we see that... Uh, Paul lays down that when the uh, Colossian saints gather, what are they to do? They are to uh, teach one another. So here we have uh, the principle of uh, being able to hear preaching and be taught by one another. Uh, But more specifically in this passage, he also lays down that we can sing. We can sing psalms, we can sing hymns, and we can sing spiritual songs. Now you ask me, what are the differences? And I'm not going to be able to give you a good answer. There are three things that clearly Paul understood that the Colossians were going to understand. Of course, we know that the Psalms are the 150 uh, chapters, what we would call, of the book of Psalms. Right? We understand that. Hymns, uh, in our language, would be those more traditional songs that we grew up with that are bound together in a book. Uh, I'm not going to argue that that's what Paul meant here. But then there are also spiritual psalms. What we might find the distinction being is that the psalms are clearly just singing the song book of Israel. Okay, uh, Hymns might be more theologically dense, longer songs that we could sing. And spiritual songs might be shorter sort of uh, praise type songs that we can sing to one another. I think that's a good uh interpretation of what Paul is saying here. But notice that all three of them are there. Okay? All three. So whether so there is there has been a debate whether the New Testament church should only sing the Psalms. Well, I don't think so, according to Colossians chapter 3. I think according to Colossians chapter 3, we are free to sing uh, the Psalms. We are also free to sing uh, hymns and spiritual songs. In fact, we are commanded sometimes to sing a new song to God. So as we sing a new song to God, we understand that those have to be written and they have to be employed, right? Would you say that we're commanded to sing all three, though? 
like Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, wherever they are, whatever we think they are, we're right. going to do all of them. Agreed. I agree. It's interesting. You might be pointing this out. This is the last time I'll say something, I promise. But Fine. it's the, that we sing them to one another. Yeah. So it's not like we're just singing them up there in the front or they're singing them to us. Right. Rather, we're like looking around and we're singing them to one another and yeah. encouragement. We are encouraging each other even more as we see the day approaching. Right? Especially through our worship. Now, there is something to be said. Um, who are the principal musicians in a worship service? The principal musicians are the congregation. If you want to talk about a choir, there is a choir in every gathering of every church. And it is not the, the, those standing up in robes up there in the front. The choir is the gathered congregation, and we are the principal musicians singing praises to God. Yes, we have those leading us, and thankfully they can sing better than I can, right? But they're, they're leading us, but the worship, the principal musicians are the people of God singing. Uh, there's no more disheartening thing that I've ever heard than to walk into a church and to hear beautiful ladies' voices all over the place. Not because, ladies, because I, I don't like to hear you singing. It's disheartening because uh, all the men are silent. There are men are standing there. But there are no male voices in that choir. Right? All of us together, we are to be worshiping God. We are the choir. And every voice must sing out praise to God. And, and in so doing, as we're singing praise to God, we're also directing our prayers to one another. So... Does every song have to be specifically directed to God? Well, like, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, well, even that one, right? No, our songs, even in the structure of their grammar, our songs can be directed toward each other. We can command each other to do the things that God says to do in our songs, and that's a uh, fulfillment of what God says here. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, uh, Paul says, I want the men of every place to lift up holy hands in prayer. Uh, I just want to mention here, prayer is an element of worship. When Paul says the men of every place, the word place has to do with every town having a church and that church gathered. Okay, So when the church gathers, he wants prayer. And he wants the men of every place to, to pray with hands lifted up. All I want to say there is uh, that there is a posture in worship. And we need to understand what our posture in worship is going to be. Are we free to sit before the King of Kings? Are we free to lift our hands before the King of Kings? Right? We need to examine the Scriptures to find out what uh, the proper way that we want to worship God. Okay, uh, so uh, so when the pastoral prayer is being offered, you want to lift up your hands. Lift up your hands. Right? There are postures given to us in Scripture that are acceptable. Okay, uh, there are things like where we worship and specifically, where do we put the pulpit? You know, this has been a, a discussion in Christian worship uh, through the ages, right? Uh, where do we put the pulpit? Some, some congregations put the pulpit off to the side and the reason for that is they want to, they're, they're saying something. They're saying that the table, the Lord's table is in the middle. That's the principal reason we've gathered, Right? In Baptist churches, in, in, in a more Puritan tradition, right, the pulpit will go in the center. What are we trying to say? We're trying to say that the word preached is the center of our worship, 
Okay? There are lots of elements that go into worship. Finally, uh, there is a principle of the Lord's Day in Revelation chapter 1. Uh, it's the only place in Scripture where the, word, where the phrase the Lord's Day is used. But the construction the Lord's Day in Revelation chapter 1 is the same construction used for the Lord's Supper. So it, it's, a, it's not the day of the Lord, which is the day of judgment. It is the Lord's Day that John writes to the churches uh, in the book of Revelation about what they are to do. Uh, they, they understand what the Lord's Day is. What is the Lord's Day in Acts chapter 20 and in 1 Corinthians chapter 16? We learn that the apostles designated uh, by the Holy Spirit, the apostles designated the first day of the week as the uh, day of worship, the day that Jesus rose from the dead. This is when Christians are to gather for worship. And I'm out of time. Thank you all for your attention. We're going to dismiss here. Thanks, guys. You have three more. I'll take this. Okay. <laughs> I only have two more. Uh-huh. It takes a while for this thing to stop. Oh, I didn't stop it. Oh. It's recorded all my banter. <laughs> it's okay. Yeah. We'll take it. Oh, my God.